This is Dennis Mundy. I'm here with my co-host, Phil Goldberg. We're with uh, Spirit Matters, found at spiritmatterstalk.com. Our guest today, Graham Schweig. Uh, he is both a scholar and a practitioner of uh, yoga. Uh, he has his Ph.D. from uh, Harvard University in Comparative Religions, and he has over 100 publications. Uh, he has also uh, studied and practiced yoga for over 45 years, and uh, we'll get into both those areas today. Uh, Graham, thank you so very much for taking the time to come on with us today. Happy to be here. Thank you. Graham, um, let's begin by giving our listeners a bit of your background. Perhaps you can give us the uh, overview of uh, your own spiritual path and how it led you to academia and, uh, and mention your current academic position while you're at it. Sure. Um, currently, I'm professor of philosophy and religion and director of studies in religion at Christopher Newport University in Virginia, uh, the state's newest university, only 50 years old, uh, but it is a beautiful campus and a, a wonderful place to teach, where I teach undergraduates. But I also have another faculty appointment 3,000 miles away over in Berkeley, California, with the Graduate Theological Union, uh, and there I teach for the Center for Dharma Studies uh, and am distinguished research and teaching faculty there. So that's current. If you want me to go back, Phil, I can yes. do that. Yeah, when I was 13, my parents put me in a private school in the Washington, D.C. area, and the headmaster, when speaking to me, said, why don't you get an early start take a course with me over the summer called linguistics. Well, I was too embarrassed to tell him that I did not know what linguistics was. In fact, many people, many adults don't quite know what linguistics is as a field. But I found out rather quickly when I went to the course and were studying the structure of, of Hittite and Hebrew and ancient Egyptian and pictographic languages, whatnot in the, in the Middle East, and then he went over to India and started talking about Sanskrit and talking about the Vedas, talking about yoga texts and so on. And my ears perked inexplicably. I, I'm not even quite sure why, um, you know, when we were talking about Hebrew or Egyptian, why ni neither of those or Arabic <laughs> or any of those perked my ears. Sanskrit really perked my ears. And growing up in the 60s and in Washington, D.C., uh, when immigration laws lifted for Indian nationals, every yoga teacher that came over in the mid-60s passed through Washington. And practically every single one of them I attended. Anyway, to make a long story short, I even asked my parents, very educated people, if I could drop out of high school and at 15, and they said, uh, well, okay, we've always believed in your instincts, but why? What are you going to do? I said, I'll be meditating all day and reading yoga philosophy and world religions all day. They kind of scratched their heads and they said, well, okay. And uh, they said, what about college? 
And I said, if it's supposed to happen, it'll happen. Anyway, it did happen. And I went on to Johns Hopkins and, um, and there I would learn uh, more. I went there early, a year earlier than my peers precisely to learn more about Sanskrit and get more training to be able to appreciate where yoga came from. So and then the rest is history. I pretty much did the dual track, Phil, of practicing yoga very deeply, very sincerely, and at the same time, really pursuing the academic route to gain the intellectual tools to be able to appreciate uh, the sources of yoga, especially uh, textual sources and so on. So that's the quick of it. Right. Graham, if, if I could uh, ask uh, at this point, uh, you, 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 have the, you, you are both a scholar and a practitioner of yoga. Uh, if you were just a practitioner of yoga without doing all the scholarship you've done, would it, it have uh, lessened the depth of your experience in yoga? Because yoga is experiential, as I understand it. Meditation is experiential. And there are people that just do scholarship. There are people that just do practice yoga. But my, my curiosity is uh, how the uh, intellectual understanding has affected, affected or deepened the experience. I could see vice versa easily, how the practice could illuminate the scholarship, but does the scholarship deepen the uh, the uh, experiential end? Yes, I, I really appreciate the question, because in my case, absolutely, that is the case. In fact, in Patanjali's Yoga Sutra, we have there in the second part, the Sadhanapada. Um, uh, this is a text which I'm currently translating uh, that will be published by Yale. Um, the, the, the second part of first aphorism or sutra text talks about three things uh, in Kriya Yoga. Uh, now, Kriya Yoga is defined by Yogananda as a very specific formulation of what can be considered a Kriya. A Kriya has more general uh, uh, requirements in the Yoga Sutra. And one of those, the second of which is Swadhyaya. Swadhyaya means a deep study, uh, a little bit like uh, what they have in Christianity, uh, uh, Lexio Divina, uh, this, the ability to study the divine through texts. And um, Swadhyaya really means that. It means reading into very, very deeply into sacred texts um, and to and to sit with those texts. And not, it doesn't mean just reading through like you would a novel. It's, it's meant more like the way someone would do an asana, maybe hundreds of times. You would read deeply into particular verses or passages uh, that would sink into one's consciousness and eventually be illuminating uh, one's own awareness. So yes. Very important. Mm -hmm. Very good. Um, Graham, uh, let's backtrack a second. You've, you've used the word yoga a lot, and I, I just want to clarify for our audience, who might, some of whom might be associating the word yoga with um, its awesome. predominant image of uh, physical practices of asana. Um, 
Uh, you don't mean that uh, exclusively when you're talking about your own experiences and your own background. And uh, in that context, uh, from what I know, your uh, a major part of your uh, studies uh, have to do with the bhakti tradition. Yes. Um, so, and I'd love to have you talk about that from a scholarly point of view and 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 your own experience. Yes, well, uh, you're exactly right, Phil. Uh, you certainly are uh, an author of of uh, of these topics on yoga, and um, yes, too often people reduce yoga to, at best, what is considered by Patanjali's Yoga Sutra, one-eighth the practice of yoga. So as you know, there's yama, niyama, asana, pranayama, pratyahara, dharana, dhyana, samadhi. So those eight limbs out of which there is only one devoted to positioning of the body. But but there are limbs, and to do a complete practice of yoga means you're practicing all eight limbs. So whatever form of yoga you're practicing, you really ultimately have a complete practice when all eight limbs are engaged. Now, part of what is involved with those limbs is ultimately the affective faculty uh, of the human, the heart, the seat of emotion, and I don't mean the seat of, of, of normal or typical emotions. I am talking about this deepest seat of feeling that is there within every human being. One of the things I'm going to be bringing out and relevant to your question, uh, Phil, is, is that yoga is about being a human being. The, the, the funny thing about it is people think that they're either practicing yoga or they're not. Actually, everyone is practicing yoga, whether they're aware of it or not. There's something that I call sahaja yoga, which is when all eight limbs are actually being practiced unconsciously and partially. So everyone breathes, everyone positions their bodies. Everyone has a, an ethical stance when interacting with others. Everyone has personal practices. Everyone likes time alone. Everyone likes to contemplate things. These are all, these are limbs that, that when deliberately practicing yoga, get enhanced to a much greater level of potential. So it's being human much more deliberately is what the real practice of yoga is. Graham, uh, you, yeah. when, you're, when you're teaching your undergraduate students, I'm sure uh, many of them, or at least some of them, become inspired to uh, have the experiential side of, uh, of yoga. Uh, and uh, if somebody comes to you, a student, and says, hey, how, I, where, where can I start? What can I do? Uh, where do I go uh, so that I can practice, uh, take on a, 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 a practice that will deepen my uh, experience? And on the flip side, if uh, you have a, uh, a scholar uh, that, uh, a, a practitioner rather, uh, that would uh, uh, like to know uh, more, to what they could read that would enhance their experience of yoga, uh, uh, what would you recommend to them? So but from both sides. Yes, yes. Well, um, I'll combine 
uh, I'll combine my response to that uh, while continuing my response to Phil's previous question, which um, or last question. Um, and, and, you know, it's it, one of the reasons I translate the original yoga texts myself is because I am so frustrated in using other translations that do not bring out the depths and beauty of the original. Uh, and and, it, and bringing that into English is no, you know, easy task. So... Uh, where a typical academic scholar will translate something, they'll look at something, they'll translate it, spend a few minutes with it, and move on. I can spend as much as two or three weeks on a single verse because it is about delving deeply into the, the, the messages, the deeper messages of the text. And part of uh, that exercise is a practice of yoga that includes the heart, a heart-centered yoga. But you can't really get to that until, um, uh, at least in a deep way, until you've become familiar with, um, uh, you know, some kind of knowledge of yoga. It's like getting to know somebody. You first get to know them, and then you can love them. To, to involve one's heart, uh, initially, of course, is always there. One is naturally attracted uh, to this kind of yoga or that kind of yoga. We meet people who bring us to this kind of yoga or that kind of yoga. Um, uh, and, and sometimes it's a turnoff. Sometimes it's, it's something very attractive. So it is a bit of a, uh, an exploration. It's a bit intuitive at first. But ultimately, yoga must involve and engage the affective faculty of the human which is the heart. We come into this world feeling. I don't know if either of you have ever seen a baby human, but they're, you know, they, they are, uh, you may, okay, you may have. Okay, so the, you notice that their limbs are completely useless. They, they don't function. Um, as far as thinking and pursuing things deeply on a wisdom level or intellectual level, they're really not useful that way either. Basically, we come into this world as feeling creatures. We either feel loved or we do not feel loved. We feel affection from others and we and we offer affection to others as, as infants. And to flip ahead quickly, wind the clock quickly ahead, on our deathbeds, we do not, it is, we're hardly able to, to function physically anymore. And intellectually, this is no time to start, you know, diving into uh, intellectual matters. What you're left with really is, have I loved well and have I loved much? Or I might reverse it. Have I loved much and have I loved well? Bhakti yoga is exactly preoccupied with that very faculty, that pursuit. Now, the bhakti yoga... Um, people may be familiar with now takes the expression of uh, kirtan, uh, Sanskrit chanting in groups, call and response, uh, chanting of Sanskrit mantras, which has become quite popular. There's bhakti festivals and kirtan festivals and 
kirtan uh, sessions at yoga classes now. Going back to when some of us were young, <laughs> yes. in those days, the only expression of that uh, publicly was what we think of as the Hare Krishna movement, um, people uh, singing and chanting in the streets. And uh, and uh, you've been a student of that tradition, the, uh, what is called the Gaudiya Vaishnavite tradition for many years. And I'm curious to know what your thoughts are uh, about the evolution of bhakti and kirtan f since those days. And please tell our audience something about the Vaishnavite tradition, which they may or may not know much about. Right. Okay. Uh, is a word in Sanskrit that is derivative. Um, it, it's a, the strengthening of the vowels are there from the, the, the uh, nomenclature for the divine as Vishnu. So Vishnu, Vish turns into Vaish, and Nu turns into Nava. So you've got Vaishnava. So Vaishnava is one whose focus and, and is centered upon the worship of and love, loving worship, uh, uh, and, and yoga practice directed toward the deity or the divine as Vishnu or Krishna. Uh, as in Bhagavad Gita, uh, there Vishnu is known as Krishna. So this is the deity who is well known for playing the flute. He's the only one who plays the flute. And that flute represents or symbolizes a love call. And the meaning of this is that divinity already embraces all of us. It embraces us from without, it embraces us from within, it embraces us all around us, and yet it still longs for our embrace, our return embrace. In bhakti, the return embrace is uh, uh, when we actually experience bhakti, when the practitioner knows how to uh, reciprocate divinity in all of the lives, uh, that is that is bhakti. So kirtan might be one of those practices for that. Um, meditation is, is of, of of certain kinds, and many many kinds of meditation. But certain kinds of meditation can be another practice of this. Um, again, swadhyaya, deep study, deep reading, is a practice of this. Um, ways of interacting in the world. Um, uh, being sensitive to all life forms um, uh, is another practice uh, 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 of bhakti and so on. Uh, does that help illuminate a little bit of this? Uh, yes, and um, how do you think, what do you have uh, to say about the evolution from, you know, young people dancing and chanting in the streets to its current manifestations? Okay, now the dancing in the street, I have to tell you, that comes from a particular bhakti tradition mm -hmm. uh, coming from the 16th century Sri Krishna Chaitanya um, in Bengal. Uh, he originated in Bengal, uh, ended up in Jagannath Puri in Orissa, but went to Brindavan and went all over India. And um, he's an historically verifiable personality who 
was engaged in chanting the names of Krishna and Radha, the uh, supreme goddess consort of Krishna. Uh, so divinity in this tradition is both a supreme feminine and supreme masculine divinity. There's, uh, in some sense, it is their love. The love between them is worshipped even more than either of them. At least this is at the most advanced levels of the tradition. Uh, but in this tradition, the uh, the way kirtan began um, of uh, of the kind that involved, you know, uh, this uh, out in the city and mm-hmm. with groups of people, it began one night when Chaitanya Mahaprabhu, as he's known, um, it, it was a chanting in a friend's house, Srivas Thakur's house, and they got would get together chanting every night, and they would do this every night. But one night, it just held them and it just became so there was so much fervor and intensity that it went all night long and then even the next morning it got even more intense and burst out into the city of Navadweep in Bengal oh. and attracted crowds of people and just hordes of people were chanting and dancing and celebrating this love this this divine love between Radha and Krishna and so oh. This, so what you see today in that way, in the Hare Krishna movement, they are, in effect, replicating that event. Mm-hmm. So uh. it's, it's not someone's crazy idea, you know, let's do a, 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 a version of a, of a mob, a flash mob, a mob <laughs> whatever it's called. I don't know what it's called. A flash mob or something. It's, it's, this, is, this is something that, uh, that this, this is the origin of the flash mob. This is where it came from. Um, in this little town of Navadweep in Bengal. Mm-hmm. That's great. great. I've right? never heard that. Yeah. Fast forward to Tompkins yeah. Square. Yeah, Dennis. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, Graham, <laughs> exactly. I wanted to go back to. I wanted to go back to my last question. If a, uh, yeah. real specifically, if a student comes up to you, uh, an undergraduate student says, "Hey, I want to learn meditation or practice yoga," what do you specifically tell them? And also, are most of your students? Do they categorize themselves now? as spiritual but not religious, which is something we're hearing uh, more and more of. So those two questions, yeah. Right. Uh, Going backwards, um, I just gave a university-wide lecture on spiritual but not religious, and um, uh, there are a few other places that have asked me to talk about this rather, I guess, hot topic in one sense. People are trying to understand it, Um, and that's the job of a scholar, is to try to, you know, add some clarity to these things, uh, these phenomena uh, that, that arise in, in one's field. So naturally, I would focus on this. Now, my students will often ask me, well, one of the greatest compliments I've ever gotten in, this, in the reviews, and my reviews are, I'm very blessed to always have very, very high reviews, but one of the reviews said, when Dr. Schweig talks about Taoism, we think he's a Taoist. When Dr. Schweig talks about Islam, we think he's a Muslim. When Dr. Schweig talks about Buddhism, we think he's a Buddhist. We don't know what the hell Dr. Schweig is. And and that's the way I like to keep it. Mm -hmm. Why? Because I don't want to influence people from within the academic setting in any particular direction, negatively or positively. 
What I do encourage people to do is to think deeply about these subjects and to know the, the religious dimension of human existence. So I start with philosophical theology. I start with what's called natural theology. Everyone has faith. It's just a question of how that's developed to the second level, that faith might be in science, it might be in secular humanism, it might be in atheism, it might be in communism, it might be in Catholicism, it might, and so on and so forth. And in fact, the Bhagavad Gita says as much. Faith is there in everyone. Whatever one's faith, that is what we are made of. Chapter 17, verse 3. So uh, this is so important um, that uh, while I do inspire, I think, many, many students, um, I don't direct them, but I encourage them to go on their search. Okay. And... And the spiritual but not religious phenomenon, how do you, as I have feelings about it and insights about it from my uh, lay perspective, you as an academic, especially one involved with a uh, younger generation of students, um, how do you see this phenomenon, which is, uh, according to surveys, growing uh, more and more all the time? And what, uh, how do you understand spiritual but not religious in the context of uh, a sort of religious history. Okay, uh, start again with your last point. Uh, I think the SBNR, as we call it, uh, spiritual but not religious, um, SBNR is a very important uh, uh, trend that is, I think, acting as a corrective to institutional religions that put forward the institution as more important than the individual. Mm. This is where religion has gone bad, in my opinion, in my unhumble opinion. Um, <laughs> uh, I just needed to qualify that because you may wanted to know, you may have wanted to know whether it was humble or not. But the point is, it's unhumble because I observe this going on in different institutions. Um, uh, you mentioned the Hare Krishna movement. Uh, after its founder uh, left, the institution has become the overriding effect, and the, and and the the individuals are are not so important too often. I'm not saying it's always that way, but the kind of depersonalization, the kind of um, uh, lack of intimate connection with individuals, which is where religion resides, as my, one of my great teachers at Harvard, Wilfred Cantwell Smith, he said, there are, in one sense, ultimately as many religions on earth as there are humans. Even though there may be sh communities sharing a similar or a singular vision, the fact is, everyone's an individual, and again, not to be too morbid, but on our deathbeds, all that institutional stuff goes out the window. It's what what stays in your heart, what sticks. And if if there has been uh, an acrimonious relationship with a religious institution or resistances or one is feeling forced and, and manipulated by an institution, this is simply not the spirit of religion. So SBNR is a reaction to this, naturally. 
But will the SBNR trend ever produce a Notre Dame cathedral? Mm-hmm. No, it will not. SBNR, by its very nature, is, is, is privileging the individual over absolutely everything else. Uh, it will never come together as a community, but rather as a kind of general trend. And the beauty of, of, of institutions or communities of faith is that they can produce something like a Notre Dame, a cathedral that was built over 700 years. Most of the people who worked on that cathedral did so without ever knowing the end product. But yet their faith gave them the energy to produce such beauty and such extraordinary, uh, uh, you know, uh, human feat. Uh, Graham, thank you uh, so much for your time. Uh, Very, very uh, interesting subject matter. Uh, Phil, any final questions uh, that you'd like to bring up? I know we only have a couple of minutes, so I would invite uh, Graham to uh, conclude anything he'd like the listeners to know and to mention his own work, his uh, what he calls The Secret Yoga, and uh, his uh, translations of the Gita and other works. Yes, well, well, first of all, I really appreciate uh, what both of you uh, do in this regard. I think that uh, Spirit Matters is, uh, you know, I, I think to focus on this most intimate aspect of the human is so important and to leave some of the distractions of this world for a little bit and to focus on really what we are left with, you know, in our own, you know, isolation, what do we have really, you know, what is left, what still, what really sticks in our hearts? Have we loved much and have we loved well? This is the question that I insist everyone asks at the end of their lives. And so one of the beautiful treasures that focuses on this, the third most read sacred text in the world after the Bible and the Quran is the Bhagavad Gita. And I wanted to bring this out, this message of have we loved much and have we loved well. This is the ultimate message of the Gita. And I was frustrated that most Gita translations really don't bring this out. So uh, my books often begin with frustration and then inspiration. So, uh, yes. <laughs> I can go the other way. Yeah, I go the other way. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, you get frustrated once you, yeah. yeah. Uh, I, 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 I like my way, Phil. You know why? Because it, it, it motivates me to do it. Yeah. I, I, I just can't find the juice, you know. Mm-hmm. But then I dive in and I just, and, and all these miraculous, unexpected explosions of revelations of what this text has been saying, even though I've been reading it for 40 years. That's great. So HarperCollins produced it and uh, it is in paperback and it's, it is, uh, it's uh, 50,000 have sold. I don't know who's buying it out there. I know a lot of yoga workshops. I have one. Well, there's one I, right there. I will get one. We'll have all that information. <laughs> Post it yes, up when we post up the, the podcast. So uh, yeah, folks want, want to get the book, bring it up to 100,000, and uh, uh, we'll have that, that uh, posted 
thank you so much, uh, Graham. Uh, fabulous. Hope you can come back on again sometime. And uh, your uh, website, which we'll also have posted up, www.gramschweig.com, uh, and uh, has all your information there and events that you're involved in as well. So uh, please, uh, to our listeners, check that out. And we'll mention www.secretyoga.com as well. We're good at plugs, Graham. Yeah, well, well, the plug that I really need to mention to you is those are um, heavily neglected uh, sites, though they're still valid. (laughs) Uh, The one I use Facebook, which is open to everyone, to announce, for example, my Smithsonian Institution talks on uh, experiencing the divine uh, religions of India. That will be happening on June 15th five hours of lectures at the Smithsonian. So all of that is on Facebook. Unfortunately, I don't, I'm not very good at uh, self-promotion. So I don't, I'm sloppy and I just do it on Facebook. We we have that same problem. So we can can relate. Uh, I guess like attracts like. There you go. Exactly. All right. Thank you so much. Thanks, Graham. All the best. Thank you very much for the opportunity, gentlemen. Thank you so much.